complaints and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we have on Krista McCurlin, a friend of ours, to talk about the priesthood of all believers and how it relates to foundational need, human flourishing, and gender essentialism. So coming at us from not Texas, not California, but from New Zealand. So through the magic of time and tech, we're just delighted to have you on with this talk. It's been a long time coming. And if you hear a baby crying, you all know what's up. Yes. So welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome. All right. So I'll give you guys a little bit of uh, her history. Uh, she's got a PhD from the University of St. Andrews, St. Mary's College. Uh, she's also got two master's degrees, uh, I think a master in arts and a THM from Talbot. That's Biola. And I also know her from her work starting Thrive Ministry at Biola University. Um, since then, she's also founded Logia. Uh, is that correct? Logia, but it's whatever you want to call it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she also serves as the executive director. It's an organization within the Logos Institute that supports women pursuing postgraduate divinity, divinity education. And she's currently a lecturer in systematic theology in New Zealand at Cary Baptist College. And finally... Um, She's also, she was a project manager and contributor to the third edition of Discovering Biblical Equality. Oh, that book. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. One we're all excited about that's coming out soon. So welcome. Thank you so much. <clears throat> and thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, we're excited. It's been a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> it has uh, been. So tell us about your, your story. How did you go from being you know, uh, we, we knew you at Biola previously when you were master. Like I was, we were an undergrad and you were doing your master's degree, but what's the story before that? And what's the story post that? Or I think it was the reverse. I think I was doing my master's degree or maybe in my PhD. I don't know. It gets all blurry, but. <laughs> Lots <yeah>. of education. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. I mean, we, we had contact through CBE. So mm-hmm. I remember I was going back to Biola. I don't know if you were already doing a master's degree at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that'll, uh, we'll figure out where our uh, touch point was in the course of my story a little bit. Um, Yes, I was actually uh, born and raised in Georgia in the U.S. Um, I am the daughter of a Southern Baptist minister in a megachurch context. Um, And also, and today I know is uh, Mother's Day, so I don't know when this podcast will release, but um, I'm the mother of an attorney um, and saw just in my, my parents' role modeling, just a really um, beautiful picture of mutuality, Hmm. even though um, in that uh, Southern kind of context and Southern Baptist in particular, that's not the dominant narrative, um, to say the least, is to have that kind of um, modeling in your home. But I was incredibly blessed to have um, an incredibly strong father, an incredibly strong mother, um, and uh, just my mom working outside of the home. I remember that from a very early age. And how my dad just has always encouraged my mom to be even more of who she is. And my mom is a, a very, uh, 
she's a firecracker. <laughs> so <laughs> to encourage her to be even more of who she is, um, is itself a feat and just as a testament, mm. honestly, to my dad's strength and character. And so, um, yeah, so I grew up in that context. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for it. Uh, my love for scripture, uh, my love for Jesus, and also um, my Baptist roots mm. where it, it's informed my ecclesiology. Um, I'm, I'm all for uh, the priesthood of all believers as that is, intended to be enacted um, through congregational mm. leadership. It's mm. not that we always do that, right, in, in those different church structures, but that that's the, the heart of it, theoretically. And so that has, um, that's always been a, a guiding framework for me. Um, and then also the role of the Spirit in that. Now, granted, again, in, in Southern Baptist world, the Spirit's not always talked about explicitly, um, but I, I think in the healthiest forms of those churches, um, the spirit is moving and they, we are seeking not to inhibit that movement. Hmm. And so um, from a very early age, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, younger than six, I was asking spiritual questions of, of both of my parents um, and they were guiding me through kind of what does it mean to be in a, a loving relationship with the, the savior of the universe uh, and so I've always been drawn to just a friendship with Jesus. Um, and again, going back to my parents, just saw them modeling a, a life full of joy uh, in the spirit and in Christ. And, and so the spirits just, I think that's going to be central to this whole podcast uh, and this whole priesthood of all believers. Because um, from a, an early age, my parents just saw in me um, leadership qualities. And um, I've just always loved teaching. I've, uh, I've come across, my mom was, they moved houses recently and came across a journal of mine from when I was um, nine years old. Oh, wow. And it was one of those like devotional journals where they had like excerpts of scripture. Oh. And then you had questions that you would answer as a little kid. And one of them was about the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and it said, and Jesus fed the 5,000 men. And it had a parentheses, not including women and children. And in my nine-year-old handwriting, in the margin, it says, where are the women and children? Mm -hmm. And so that, that stood out to me even as a nine-year-old, that invisibility um, mm -hmm. and not knowing, well, how does the text speak to me um, as a woman? And then, of course, being in um, that Southern Baptist context, I also didn't really, I saw <laughs> the invisibility of women, if that's not <laughs> uh, contradictory, um, just in who was up front, who was serving the Lord's Supper, who was baptizing, who was um, at the front for altar calls and for prayer times, um, who was leading worship, who was preaching, even who was passing an offering plate. Um, the invisibility of women, it stood out to me in practice, but then it also stood out to me in this text. Um, and so these things have been on my heart long before I was exposed to feminism, uh, for those that think it was just a corrupting influence of my later youth. Got written um, proof. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, I do. I have written proof. Um, and so this was very important to me from an early age. And, um, and my parents just sought to foster that. They sought to foster um, my love for Christ, my love for scripture. And so I, I remember um, at a, a very early age, probably around 12, um, my parents were, were wondering and asking a friend of theirs, they've recounted this story to me after the fact, um, that they were like, what do we do with Krista's, um, like just her, her leadership? Like they were seeing that at a very early age. Um, and, and this friend uh, who leads a, a parachurch organization on discipleship, global discipleship, said, well, you know what, Hugh and Mary Lynn, you just, you just have to get out of her way. Hmm. 
<laughs> and and I don't I don't mean that in a self-congratulatory look at how awesome I was at an early age. It really was a work of the spirit. And my parents picked up on hmm. these gifts uh, and, and these passions of mine. And instead of being afraid of those or curtailing those or telling me what audience those had to be operated within, they got out of the way hmm. and they became stepping stones more, more so even than they already were. Um, to me, just fully living out my, my, my calling. And so anyways, that was early, early years of Krista and then continuing to develop and grow. Um, But then really grappling uh, when I went off to college, I went to the university of Georgia. Um, I did two, um, it was a double degree. I did philosophy and women's studies, probably two of the most progressive degrees you could (laughs) pursue at a state school. And both of those were so valuable to me. So for one, for philosophy, uh, it started me, it gave me tools to think critically about my beliefs um, and, and from things like election and predestination and God's, the telos of humanity and all those kind of the big questions, the existential questions, but then also things like the logic of gender roles um, and the logic of gender essentialism, um, those kinds of tools. Um, just to be equipped with those philosophically. And then I was doing women's studies. Um, and in that context, I was, I believe I was probably the only Christian in the whole department. And I, two things really stood out during that time. One, I saw among my, my peers and friends in that department, uh, more of a radical love for people hmm. and for fighting injustice than I had ever seen in the hmm. church. And that was incredibly compelling and convicting. And secondly, I had a lot of pushback from these friends on how on earth I could be a Christian and still believe that, that women are fully people. Mm. Uh, They just said, your faith just completely oppresses women. There's just no way they're, they're mutually exclusive. We've got a problem. (laughs) We've got a problem. And so it was around that time as well as a 19, 20 year old um, that I was serving in a local church now, not in my home church. So now I wasn't the daughter of this, you know, minister. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was just me. And so um, having to grapple with my own faith and my own calling in a space where I didn't have credibility based Mm -hmm. on who I was born from (laughs) and what family I, I was from. So it was at that juncture that I really came to this crossroads um, serving in that, that um, local Baptist church where I was teaching consistently, but then starting to get a little bit of resistance to that teaching because of it being a mixed group, boys and girls. Um, and so I was getting that line of, of kind of resistance. And then in my women's studies program, I was getting resistance to just my faith in general. And so I felt like I was at this crossroads. Either I can pursue my passion and my calling um, for Jesus and for teaching and preaching, but that can only be in a very narrow confine of, of who is allowed to be in the room when I teach it mm. and who am I always checking that my teaching against. It's not checking it against scripture as much as it's checking against a male authority. Mm. Um, and sometimes those get conflated in that conversation, which I understand, but it was either curtail my gifts and my calling or it was abandon my faith. Mm. and recognize that Christianity is just patriarchal to its roots um, and there's nothing to salvage. And so fortunately, as the spirit would have it, 
um, <laughs> there was a mentor um, who, who wasn't raised in that denomination from birth, who had come from outside of it, um, who was actually a, a big leader in um, John Maxwell's Enjoy Corporation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so leadership was his bread and butter. And he just saw that I was in some, some real crisis in my beliefs. Um, and, and ultimately I knew where I was going to land on that is if I, if it came down to those two crossroads, I couldn't abandon my faith because I knew Jesus way too well. And I knew that he knew me <laughs> and loved me. And so I knew that wasn't going to be an option. And so the other, um, path was that I was going to have to forfeit some of my strength and some of my calling, um, that I, I was like, well, part of my soul will die, but mm. that's going to have to be the option. So he gave me a book at that juncture um, that provided for the very first time an egalitarian reading of the text. And I know I went home and I read it for about six hours and I felt like the weight of the world lifted off of me um, as I read for the first time that there was a way to have both, that there was a way to be true to my passions, true to my convictions that I had sensed since I was a little girl um, and to preach and to teach and to help people know Jesus and also um, that I, I didn't have to abandon any of my faith. In fact, it only enriched my faith. Hmm. And so that was, that was critical for me. Um, one, for that reason and my personal calling and conviction um, ministerially, but then also it opened my eyes that, hey, this keeps coming back to the Greek. So many of these arguments keep coming back to original languages. Yeah. So you know what? I think I'm going to have to go on and learn <laughs> Greek. Yeah. And so that line of thinking got me also on the track of, well, I probably am not ever going to have influence within the church, especially if I stay in the Southern Baptist denomination, um, which I, I love. And those are my people. Um, and so if I'm not going to have influence within it, maybe I'll have influence outside of it that can then have influence within it. So maybe I could be in a classroom where my, you know, my teaching expertise is not going to be so questioned yeah. and I can influence minds who will then influence their church communities. And so at that time, as a 20, 21 year old, I knew I was going to go on to graduate school. Um, and eventually I, I knew I wanted to do even more studies so that I could be a professor at some point. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, that was really what, what got me on that whole trajectory and going from the university of Georgia uh, met and married Matt. So that's its whole a whole other story for another podcast for another day. Um, yeah, you'll have to have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be fun to hear from Matt in this as well because yeah. I, I think that's one of the narratives that we really don't have enough of are yeah. secure men who have been able to um, just partner the strong <laughs> women in their lives. And um, you guys so combined I think your last names too. We did. So it was around that time as well. Um, so Matt's last name was McFarland and mine was Kirby. And we thought, what, how could we pictorially represent two becoming one flesh um, in a way that retains both of who we are, but also yeah. shows that we are a new creation. Um, and we pulled this from, of course, the Adamic um, language and then also from the Christ in the church in the New Testament. And so McFarland and Kirby put together the best way to not sound like a cheeseburger was <laughs> McCurland <laughs> uh, to make a new name. And so that was really important for us too in our um, engagement process, actually. And it's funny mm -hmm. enough, that was when we were first exposed to Ron and, and Becky and um, Gordon's first edition, first and second editions of Discovering Biblical Equality. 
um, were during our engagement period. And when we saw that Ron taught at Talbot um, and we found out about Biola, <clears throat> that really helped um, strengthen our resolve to go to Talbot for our, our master's degrees. And at that time, Matt felt very called into the pastorate in a pastoral ministry. Um, and then I knew the professorial role was what I needed to be equipped for. So yeah, then moved to California. We were at Biola, and that's where I did my first master's um, with Matt in biblical exposition. And so it was very language heavy. Um, and we did a bit of, um, you know, cultural context and that kind of thing as well. Uh, and then that opened up more thoughts for me, um, especially on language of Imago Day, and this language that, you know, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created, or uh, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What's going on there? Um, what's the role of the body in how we understand the image of God? And so I had a lot more questions that I wanted to dig into after my master's in biblical exposition. And so that's when I did my THM, so a master's of theology. Yeah. And I did that in systematic theology, looking more at theological anthropology. Um, so, yeah, just thinking through, okay, what's the role of the body and the image of God? Uh, and that's what I wrote my master's, that THM thesis on. Um, and around that time, also got pregnant, uh, which is something that was in its whole other conversation. I know, I know, because it, it really did extend from the theoretical yeah. for me. Um, as I was thinking more about um, my body in particular um, and how I was so afraid of the openness mm -hmm. to another body coming out of my body, <laughs> primarily because I didn't think women could be professors and moms. Mm -hmm. um, I knew my calling and I thought I don't want that to get derailed um, by having, having children um, as high of a calling as that is. Um, and so I had one role model at Biola um, that I remember who had young children during her, um, her faculty tenure. And it was so hard for her. Um, and there just weren't good policies in place. Um, and then let alone any women theologians, um, which I don't think um, we had, we had a, um, a professor in spiritual formation, but I, in the systematic theology realm, I didn't have any women uh, role models there. And so, um, yeah, so it was during that THM or finishing up the THM that I got pregnant. Um, it was also during that THM that I was exposed to analytic theology. So nice. that was in my, the very tail end of my program there. And I just, I loved the clarity of thought and the way, cause it brought me back to my philosophy degree. It brought me back to this way of thinking of like, well, what do you mean by that? Like when you say men and women are, you know, the complementarian view is men and women, uh, have, uh, unequal authority. So men have authority and women don't, or it's a very curtailed authority. Um, and then for egalitarians, we say, well, men and women both have authority. Well, when you say the word authority, what do you mean by that? And so this, this idea of question asking, of clarification of terms, of really picking, um, probably in a very annoying way, picking <laughs> at one spot <laughs> in an argument, um, and trying to get down to its um, epistemological and metaphysical underpinnings, like that was really important to me. And so one, I saw that methodology for the first time uh, in the tail end of my THM. And not only that, but I had an amazing professor there, um, Jason McMartin, who also had for the first time in my life, uh, my 30th graduate course where I read women theologians. Mm shouldn't have taken 30 courses, but 
that's where I read Eleanor Stump and Sarah Coakley. And, and they oh. were both working within that analytic tradition. And so for me, that really sealed it for me that I loved this way of thinking and not, there's more of a family resemblance in how analytic theology is being done. So they're not the only um, ways to do analytic theology, but I just love the ways their minds worked. Um, and the fact that they were women um, just encouraged me um, to the very core of me. Yeah. Um, not that I think the very core of me is um, female because that's a whole gender essentialist question. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'm time to get back to, but all that to say um, that took me um, through that master's program. Then here I am, I'm pregnant thinking through doctoral programs. And then with the pregnancy, we thought, well, let's just wait a year um, and just become parents and see how that goes. And then a friend of mine um, mm -hmm. sent me a link to the Lagos Institute when it went live, um, which would have been in December of 2016 and just said, Hey, you should check this out. Um, or no, yeah, December of 2015, just check this out. And I was due March of 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, ugh, there's no way, but I, the very first page I read, like what the questions they were asking, which had a lot to do with the Mago Day and human personhood and human uniqueness. The method was analytic and exegetical. So not just doing philosophical engagement with texts, uh, with um, concepts, theological concepts, but grounding that exegetically. So what does, uh, what do biblical studies, uh, what can they speak into this conversation? So the method was bringing all three of my loves into conversation, philosophy for my undergrad, um, biblical studies for my first master's, and then systematic theology for my second master's. And so um, that I loved that. And then it was in Scotland, which um, I had yeah, visited when I was in high school. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. Um, yeah. Incredible, incredible place. And, uh, and then all the people that they had involved in that, um, from Sarah Coakley to Alan Torrance to Oliver Crisp and Eleanor Stump. I mean, the people that had really been formative for me in my own thinking. And so I remember IMing Matt from my desk and saying, what do you think about this? And I just sent him the link because um, we'd agreed to postpone looking. And he said, you've got to apply. You just have to. Yeah. And so it was a lot of trepidation, honestly, um, and feeling quite out of my depth, um, but going for it and saying, if this is where the spirit wants us, um, that's where we'll be. And even if that door opens and then we don't have a piece about it, then we can always say no. Yeah. And so two weeks before I delivered, um, Rhea was born March 12th. So very end of February. Oh, close to, yeah, um, I, March 14th, baby over here. Hi, baby. Ah, look here. at here. <laughs> love it. It's a good month. Um, and so it was during, uh, right before I delivered that I found out I was accepted. Um, and so that really got us on a whole other trajectory of thinking about that move and how are we going to do this with a, at that time we knew we'd have a six month old when we, you know, did an international move and just thought, you know, if this is where the Lord wants us, that's where we'll go. And we just don't need to be afraid. And so, <clears throat> excuse me that's what got us to Scotland. And then <laughs> um, working on um, at that time, I was thinking through uh, because of my work on the body um, desire kept coming up. Um, and it was something else that I was thinking through of like how, what are desires? Um, what does it look like within a, a Christian framework to both value and evaluate human mm. desires? Hmm. Um, Cause I was finding we, we tend toward one or the other extreme mm. Um, and, and so we either demonize our desires and think they're all bad and we have to flee no. them, um, or we can overvalue them and have no evaluative criteria. 
and then they can actually become identity constituting. And I thought that doesn't seem to be metaphysically load bearing enough. That sounds um, scary, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think it can. But I mean, it's kind yeah. of the whole follow your heart mentality. Um, yeah. It can it can have some problems. But on the other end, um, a hyper Calvinist view on just how terrible desires are and yeah. they can't be trusted at all. I, I think that's a bit that's problematic. So I thought yeah. there's got to be a middle road somewhere in there. And, and surely we can see that through um, a Christocentric understanding of, of thinking through our desires. So that's what I wanted to do in my doctoral program. But once I got there and started getting into the literature, I actually found another concept that I didn't feel had had enough stage time. Um, and, and really, especially thinking through the analytic component, um, it was an analytic philosopher kind of talking through this idea of fundamental need and contrasting that with desires and interests. And so he's not, uh, I mean, super well-known philosopher, um, Garrett Thompson, he's an analytic political philosopher. Um, and I just read through his book, trying to get at the desire stuff and found that he had some really interesting things to say about fundamental need. And what was different from need and desire is you can have a need, but not actually desire its fulfillment. Hmm. And you can have desires for things you don't actually need. True. And of course, I, could, I can write a book on that with having a four-year-old <laughs> and how much she says, I need this. And it's like, no, <laughs> sweetie, you want that. And so we often have this um, conflation of our needs and desires, but actually needs, um, they are more mind-independent than desires. So desires, you're typically aware of them, mm. and then therefore you try to get them satisfied, whereas, whereas a need, you're not necessarily aware of a need. Although you can be, sometimes they do overlap. Yeah, so like hunger oh, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. That'd be a great okay. example. Um, but the crazy thing about the difference between a need and desire, even on that account is even as I'm eating, I still need the food. Yeah. Whereas a desire for like having a hunger, I can have the desire sated. So the desires can ebb and flow, mm. but the need is actually dispositional. It becomes constitu constitutionally significant. And so it got me thinking, huh, this criteria that Thompson has, which specifically he has, it's not a fundamental need for it to be fundamental and not something instrumental. Mm. It has to be non-circumstantial, inescapable, and non-derivative. So um, briefly through those. So non-circumstantial that no matter your external circumstance, that need must persist. So you must always need it no matter the external circumstance. And so I was thinking through, well, we think pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, uh, redeemed and glorified. Do we see a certain need emerging from the text or could we make a, that there's a, an inferential claim there? And the other criteria that it's inescapable. So you have an external constraint that it's always needed, non-circumstantially. But then there's the idea that no matter what I do, as a human person, so whether I'm embryonic or in the final stages of life, or if I have different abilities or different gendered embodiments or whatever, mm. is it inescapable in the sense that what I am more internally, that I still have that need dispositionally? And then that third criteria is it's non-derivative. So there's nothing else un, uh, undergirding it. So yeah. like, for instance, you might need a car so that you can go to work so that you can earn money so that you can buy food so that you can sate the need for yeah, you. Yeah. And then it goes back to the need. Okay. Right. So it's still, so you still have to be able to drill down to something yeah. that is most fundamental. 
And so I had these, these criteria that I thought, man, I feel like there's something here theologically. If we were to think through if are, is there a chorus of resonance across the different genres, biblical authors, redactions, however we're framing that from a biblical studies perspective, does, does a fundamental need for humanity rise to the surface if we look across the canon? And of course, I'm using a Protestant canon in that mm-hmm. context, because um, that's my context. And so, um, so that's what I went in with this lens, was this analytic rubric, but looking exegetically, mm-hmm. what have biblical scholars said is central um, to these different uh, pericopes, letters, genres, etc. And the thing that kept coming back was this relation of dependence upon mm. God's personal presence. Mm. Of course, I've got to tease out what all those terms mean more in a more fine-grained way, but the gist of it is we need to be intentionally relating to God. Yeah. And intentions can take a variety of, of ranges there as well, because I think it, we need to be always mindful of those that are most marginalized by our anthropologies. And so thinking through how my intention work for someone who's severely cognitively disabled, those right. are really important questions. What do we do with intentionality for the embryo um, or the person in a persistent vegetative state? I think we have ways of answering that in more language of capacity, um, that it's a, maybe an immature um, yeah, it's expression. Yeah, a matter of degree, yeah. Exactly, a matter of degree. But the intention is actually the same. The mm. intention for all human, humankind to have that need um, that actually seems to come across in a, a range of different voices across um, the mm. canon. I mean, we see it in the Genesis account. I mean, the being with God, <clears throat> there is no hindrance to that for the man and the woman. But what is the, I mean, they experience an exile. They are cast out of the presence mm. of God. And you've got biblical scholars like Michael Morales saying that the Pentateuch is actually setting up the problem of presence that this, it's setting up how we have been evicted from God's personal presence and that it's a story of trying to get back to that. And so what do we see? The instantiation of the tabernacle and the temple. Now, granted, these are now graded accesses that are also quite gendered. But in the garden, and this relates back to some of the stuff um, on what I wrote on even for Discovering Biblical Equality, is this idea of the man and the woman operating in a priestly function a royal priestly function even that's coming out over and over in the biblical studies material. I mean, especially people like Richard, Richard Middleton and and N.T. Wright looking at that and just how Eden is operating as a a temple like or a temple space. Mm. And then we see how presence of God, we are having the temp, the tabernacle and temple that we might reaccess that. And then we have, of course, I'm doing this as a huge broad brushstroke, right? I mean, <laughs> it would be much more nuanced than this yeah. um, to think through. But just for the sake of this podcast, we see Christ then as the temple instantiating uh, the true presence of God, while also in his own life, seemingly depending upon the presence of God. So he becomes both the model and the means uh, by which we then get to be <laughs> this, this royal priestly people. And so then we get First Peter, we get Revelation talking about this, this priesthood, this royal priesthood that we are a part of, and how that's not just a New Testament uh, invitation, but like this has been a through line um, from page one, thinking through how men and women, um, and also address intersex persons. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, and Megan DeFranza has done some great work on that as well. Um, how all humankind is intended 
to be in this intimate relationship with the God of the universe, that that is what God desires for us and then provides the means for that intimacy uh, to be materialized. And so, um, so that need language, as it turns out, um, while it was helping me think through theological anthropology, it has these really, I think, fascinating implications for what it means for all of us to be stepping into our priesthood and yes. yeah, realizing God's presence in our own lives as we depend up upon it. But also there's a functional um, expression of that where we are actually as vice regents meant to expand that presence mm -hmm. into the world, yeah. uh, which really it's the flourishing of all, um, all created kind. Yeah. So anyways, that was a really long rant on that. Uh, well, it kind of got went into our topic. So great. Hey. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably having talked with you, it primed me to think about all these things and how they all relate. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's an anthropology really born uh, out of that process. And just thinking again about this priesthood of all believers. What do we mean by that? Hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just rich. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, definitely. Okay. So that seems like it does kind of get us into your topic. Um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about, especially for some of our listeners, uh, explain a little bit of what is metaphysics and how kind of what you were talking about the foundation of kind of um, fundamental need and how that relates more specific and more, and more narrowly to the priesthood of all believers and specifically uh, well, and then maybe we can get into gender essentialism after that. Okay. Yeah. So what is metaphysics? That's going to be a, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, explain it one sentence. <laughs> No. Yeah, good good luck with that. Um I, I'm just There's thinking about way, guys. <laughs> yeah, and all this stuff is so debated, yeah. but pretty much everything I've said so far is a contended claim. Um but metaphysics, I'm just thinking about the basic um yeah. whatness of um of the universe. Uh and that but that would also include I'm thinking of like what um who is God even. So yeah. that and and whether or not that transcends metaphysics or not uh, is another live conversation. Um, as to whether or not we can actually unpack that. But basically, um, as I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to think of what's the ground floor um, of the most basic things we can we can talk about and then build up from there. Um, so I think of them as kind of fundamental building blocks um, for the texture of reality. Uh, if I <laughs> had to put it, there again, my, probably my philosopher friends would cringe, <laughs> uh, cringe at that, but... Um, yeah, just, just and, and going back to that language of mind independent. So uh, regardless, so for instance, thinking about um, God as a necessary being. Mm. So if God were to no longer exist, nothing would exist. Yeah. And that would be different from me because I'm a contingent being. If I don't exist, yeah, a few people are going to be sad, but the <laughs> world will keep spinning. You know, yeah. everything, atoms won't implode. There's the, the preservation of the material order is not, uh, doesn't weigh upon my existence. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's a metaphysical claim. I am saying something about, um, yeah, talk about fundamental. Your nature, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so that's, uh, that's really what I mean, <clears throat> if that's clear enough on the metaphysical part. When I get into fundamental need, I'm trying to think it of, especially when we start talking about human natures, because that's just such a contested um, mm -hmm phrase, a human yeah. nature. What do you mean yeah. by that? And so, I mean, even right now, um, before this talk, I'm working on my, um, lecture for my, uh, 
Humanity and Hope course for a couple of weeks from now on the, the mind-body debate and what does it mean to be human and are we a, a mo, um, you know, are we monistic? Are we just one substance or are we two substances? Um, does the soul come first and then the body comes second? And so it's more, it, it emerges from the soul and more of a Thomistic understanding, at least on my understanding of Thomas, or is it an emergent dualism where the soul comes after the body's been formed? I mean, there's just, yeah. there's a lot of different views on what it means on the constitution of the human person. And because it doesn't seem like we're going to come to the bottom of that debate anytime soon, I've also been thinking, um, because I'm a, I'm a unifier by nature. I like to bring people together. I like to find commonalities um, and things that we can, we can agree upon. Um, and so when I came across this concept of fundamental need, it made me think, hmm, is this a better kind of lowest common denominator to talk about what the constitution of humankind without necessarily having to have firm lines and boundaries drawn mm -hmm. on whether or not we are one substance or two. Yeah. And how much of a difference is that going to make versus what the route that you've gone on were, you know, we're getting to something that it, when, when push comes to shove, you know, what do we need to know about our relationship with God? Yeah. And that's a big question for me. And that's exactly Allison. What I put into this, this lecture when we'll go into some breakout groups is like, what's at stake for this now? It, it, there are some significant questions, I think, especially when we start, start talking about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Um, what happened on Holy Saturday? Um, is Jesus entirely reconstituted? At which point is Jesus even Jesus now in <laughs> the heavenly places interceding on our behalf? Like, and what do we do with that? Is that a physical form? Are we in a different dimension? Like, <laughs> The scary it, there, of philosophy. <laughs> it is a lot of philosophy and because yeah. I'm especially training um, pastors here. Yeah. And yes, yeah, some of, some of my students, they might go on, go on to further graduate study, which is great, but I want them thinking for the person in a pew on a Sunday morning, yeah. what matters when it comes to the mind body debate. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, and, and this also brings in questions about the sciences yeah. and their deliverances because that's now becoming so contentious where at least in my experience, um, what I've been seeing is people, uh, Christians are either really afraid of science. Um, and they're like, I don't, I don't want to hear any of that because it's just going to undermine my faith. Um, or people that are scientific are like, Christianity is entirely irrelevant because you can't, you're not even willing to engage what, what science is, is talking about when it comes to human persons and, what we seem to know from science. Um, and so I'm just trying to think through, could we maybe scale back a little bit and maybe say a little bit less in order to do pastorally more? Mm. <laughs> because I do think that there is, um, there's a lot that is going to be mysterious to us um, on these questions. Uh, and, and yeah, I do think our, whatever our conclusions are, if we ever get to them about what it means to be human, they do need to pass through a Christological criterion. I am yeah. committed to that. Um, but even then how much we can know is questionable. And so this idea of need one, it gives us something to talk about um, human need that would be distinctive from angelic need or ape need or fill in the blank. 
because there is something unique. One, that humans are called in the image of God, that we are uniquely given this dominion mandate, which I want to read in terms of creation, care, and vice regency of expanding the presence of God um, to the uttermost. Uh, And then we have an incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in a human form. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things speak to the distinctiveness of humankind. And so we don't need to be afraid of a species collapse. And that's even assuming we know what species are. That's hugely debated, even where you draw lines uh, where species end and another begins. But all this to say, this question about pastoral import is really, it's on, it's on the front of my mind. And so need seems to be a helpful way of talking about regardless of if we're one substance or two, we are made to be united to the Godhead and we are made to move toward Christ likeness. So, and the cool thing too, in that need is it requires the, the spirit, the spirits doing this work uh, in unifying us to, to the Godhead and bringing us into conformity with the true image. Um, so, so yeah. yeah, so need, I just think actually has a lot of um, theological payoff um, and some real pastoral payoff as well. Yeah, and, and just, a, it might be too much of a segue, but I'm, as someone, I'm a pastor, we, we deal with all this and um, I'm and the, the language you use of fundamental need and of pastoral ministry and all that, um, and the spirit especially, we're, we're big on that, but what is, and maybe a, a way of bringing it down for, for folks in pews on Sunday who come to, well, watch church now and, you know, and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. But, um, what role would worship play in this? The, the mm-hmm. idea of, of course, inviting the spirit to be present, but also mm-hmm. of, of engaging our emotions and our, our minds. I'm sure there's much more fundamentally involved in that, but could worship itself be, uh, I, I don't know quite, I don't have quite the language. So maybe I'll just ask in the form of a question. In what sense is worship maybe a factor in this? Is or, it connected to, are you asking if it's connected to the foundational need? Yeah. Or in some, or is it an expression of that need? Or yeah. I'm not quite sure, but to me, I'm just listening mm. to, I'm like, not only preaching this, but in what sense would worship be involved in maybe mm. the, this conversation? Mm. Yeah. I think it's colored throughout because hmm. that's, I think uh, going back to expression language, like if we need to be in this relationship, then worship becomes, I mean, especially thing in priestly function, yeah. like that's what, that's what their whole role was. Right. I mean, after sin enters the world, they have a, they have an additional function too. I mean, then they have to represent the people to God and, and there's a lot of cleansing that has to go on. But if you even think about, um, if we think about the, the Edenic space as a temple or a temple-like space and the man and the woman being in that um, place with God, I mean, worship would, in my understanding, it would have been just one being yeah, <laughs> with yeah. God and relating yeah. to God without any barrier at all. But then also that worship would have been done through their functional vocation. So as they are expanding the presence of God in the created world, that is worship. So it, I would have to see it as part and parcel. It's the, the other side of the coin of this identity, because again, because the need itself, regardless of whether or not you ever um, seek to have the need met, you have the need. So that's something that's the non-contingent, the mind independent reality. um, That's just part of the fabric, or at least what I'm postulating, just part of the fabric of humanness is to have this need for that interpersonal relation with God. But it would immediately, and to my mind, it would compel worship. And it makes sense, too. And I think James uh, K. 
Kay Smith, I believe, talks about this, of just that we are made worshipers, and many others have, have kind of echoed that as well. We are looking for something to worship, and I think it can even be indicative, going back to where how hunger can expose our need for food. This is where desire, I think, is really important, and I haven't done that work yet because I got sidetracked on all this need stuff in my dissertation, but that's where I'd like to go next is because I then think desire um, helps really speak into the, the need that we're experiencing. So our desires actually can be truth tracking in the sense that they are revealing something that we, uh, we need. So worship to me, worship and desire would actually have a lot of overlap, um, but I haven't gotten to work on that yet. Um, but those would just be my intuitions at this point, Nick. And mm. I, I love where you went with that. And how does this tie into especially gender justice? Because I'm thinking in terms of when you get into um, need, the need for flourishing being fundamental and tied to your relationship with God or coming out of your relationship with God, um, what happens when a person, I mean, we always talk about the person that gets denied inclusion or gets discriminated against, but what does this do to the identity of the person that's denying um, mm others to have this um, fundamental need. I, I see it as they're in a way they're twisting the person's identity or story in a sense. And in so maybe twisting their own. Is that kind of what you're Yeah, into? I think so. And then perhaps even like kind of, you see just so many people having their faith wrecked from having bad experiences in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we know about a lot of the scandals from the Southern Baptist convention as of late, but there's, you know, other, churches as well, Willow Creek, mm-hmm. and um, how does this all like work together in, in, your, in the model that you're proposing? There we go, mm-hmm. maybe better question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would say on the one hand, um, the fact that to need to be in relationship with God, um, that's going to be probably a bit more neutral when it comes to thinking through how, how the church writ large has, has seen men and women. I think they would all attest soteriologically to say, well, yeah, yeah. men and women all need Need God. Yeah, absolutely. But then I think to Nick's point, when it comes to this worshipful expression, that then is curtailed depending upon sex embodiment. Yeah. So where I would want to say, okay, we share in common this fundamental need and we also share in common our priestly vocation of expanding God's presence ever outward for the flourishing of all created things. Yeah, that would be, I think, what would be curtailed on a more um, hierarchical understanding of, you know, maybe the man is the priest of the home or that that's an exclusively masculine um, function. So I think in that sense, it could have pretty immediate bearing, but it's not going to be so much on the the concept of the need as much as the expression of um, walking out in in that worshipful uh, expression. Yeah. I guess maybe what I'm asking is it could it lead to people not getting this fundamental need met in a way. Um, so they have this underlying need and cause there's so many people whose faith gets destroyed hmm. because of this, um, which is really unfortunate and not everyone. Um, but I'm wondering how does that can, how does that connect exactly? Or does it connect? Yeah, it probably more of an indirect connection. I mean, uh, going back to what I, my undergraduate experience and the thought that, gosh, I've got to abandon my faith oh, in yeah. order to be faithful to, you know, what I, I feel like I'm a leader. I feel like I'm a teacher. Yeah. And here I can't do that in this religious space. 
Um, so in that sense, uh, I absolutely think it can be a hindrance to people getting that fundamental need met um, when Christianity is seen as oppressive or exploitative, um, or even going back to the sciences, even. Yeah. Um, they're like, well, yeah, your, your faith is irrelevant. Like, it's afraid of engaging with scientific data. And so how can, I, I can't go there with you because I've got to sign up to all of these different doctrines. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm just convinced that we are primarily physical beings. And sure, we have these epiphenomena of <laughs> uh, intersubjectivity and yada, yada, yada. But like at the end of the day, I think we are purely physical. So I'm just saying as a hypothetical, that person coming in yeah. with church context that then says, but no, you have to adhere to this form of um, two substances before you're, oh you, my know, God. you can step into this. I mean, not, not that anyone would put it in that kind of. Um, uh, there's some statements, but yeah, that try. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking too, like, what are the ways um, we've put up barriers to people um, entertaining, like, gosh, I am, I am a creature that has desires all the time. Yeah. And like, what if those desires are actually pointing to something? And so I yeah. love um, Sarah Coakley and Tom Wright, I think have both actually resonated on this point where Coakley in her first volume of her systematics, God, sexuality and the self, an essay on the Trinity yeah. is the title. Um, she wants to ground all desire back in God and yeah. say that these desires we have in our human experience, they're actually these neon signs helping point us back to the, their metaphysical root. And then with Tom Wright, he wants to talk about broken signposts, things that, again, are trying to point us back to a deeper reality. Um, and, and desires can do that. And so, yeah, so I do, I, I think we can, we can definitely set up barriers to people. And this would just be more kind of just barriers to people wanting to come to know Jesus. Yeah. That's ultimately all I'm saying here is that we need to know Jesus <laughs> in yeah. the spirit. And yeah. that's how we are united with God's very presence. Um, so the, there's, that would be far more comprehensive. We could go into ways that we, you know, dissuade people uh, from what it, you know, yeah. satisfying that, that need. So can, um, since it's a fundamental human need, you know, to be with God and the, you know, it's connected to our human flourishing. Um, can people exist without that? Okay. Great question. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is part of actually what I want to get into um, as I'm working on my monograph for mm -hmm. turning my dissertation into a monograph, oh, nice. um, yeah. which is due this December. So that is up and coming. <laughs> um, but the big problem is the hiddenness of God. Yeah. So um, Mike Ray has done some great work on this. Several other philosophers and theologians have as well. Um, and I've not sufficiently grappled with that because um, basically the concern is this. Okay, so Krista, you're saying that every human being needs God. Mm -hmm. What then do we do with those who never get that need satisfied and that's not their fault? Yeah, or get it destroyed and leave. Yeah, so let's say, yeah. and this comes up especially, um, Michelle Ponchuk's done a great job um, engaging with Ray's work on trauma. Yeah. Um, so what do you do with the person who's been so traumatized? And she's, I think, if I recall correctly, especially framing that ecclesiologically. So if they've been traumatized by the church and that capacity to relate is so destroyed because of that trauma, how, how's that going to work out in the end? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to attempt really a glib answer on that because I think this is a weighty matter. It's a hard one, yeah. Um, it is. But I, I, what I, I want to affirm is that if God has, has given hum, humans this need and that every human person has it, and again, this is a very contentious to make universal claims like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of 
part of my project um, is, am I warranted to make these universal claims? Um, but if that is the case, then if God is good, somehow the possibility for that need to be met also needs to be provided. Mm. So that, that opens up a couple of possibilities. Um, you can go the universalist route that God in the end, every, every people's needs will ultimately be met. And that, that view is really gaining some, some real traction, um, not just among philosophers, but biblical scholars. Um, I believe Doug Campbell's newest book um, moves in that direction of kind of a hopeful universalism, which doesn't mean there's no consequences for the things we've done on this planet, um, but ultimately is eternal conscious torment um, a viable option for a loving God? That's, that's a live question right now. And, and on textual bases, um, mm. that's being called into question. Um, so that's, that is one, um, one way that you could think about that fundamental need. Um, or we can say um, that something's just the matter with the human. Um, and this is probably not the only two ways of, of glossing this, but saying, well, God is God, even for the traumatized person has provided a way mm. for them to, to have that need met. Um, and so humans are still accountable for um, not having the need met if they die and, and haven't had a, that, you know, um, conversion experience or whatnot. Um, and I don't know if I'm satisfied with either of those, um, yeah. answers. So, so that's something I, I really want to dig into more. Um, because yeah, that's, that's exactly the question this should raise for us. Allison is that, yeah, that very question. When, when so. things go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But for, okay. For the time being though. Um, so with the fundamental need, um, how does this relate to gender, essentialism so that's a I, I like um that you've brought everything down to something that's more broadly i guess agreeable for a lot of people it'd be hard for people to say say no i don't think i can check that box off um and how does this i guess speak against or into gender essentialism and maybe for our listeners what is gender essentialism versus maybe some other view yeah so gender essentialism most basically is thinking that males and females um, have different natures. And by that, we mean like their very essence. So that's a metaphysical length. That's a metaphysical term. It's an yeah. ontological term. We're talking about the whatness of something. Um, that we are so distinctive that you have a male essence or a female essence. And it is, it drills down to the very core of who you are. And if there's something immaterial about us, going back to that question, then it would, it would either need to be affected by that, or it would actually, you'd have a male or a female soul. Mm. So it would be that, um, essential. Now, of course, again, that's going to raise what are people's views on human constitution would be how far they would take that essentialism. Um, but the, the, the other important piece for most gender essentialists is going to be a, a collapse of gender and biological sex. So gender is traditionally, not traditionally, I don't know if that's the right word, has now at least um, academically been understood to be um, cultural prescriptions on what it means to perform your maleness or your femaleness. So for instance, take the U.S. or take the South in the U.S. because it can range even from region. Um, and it's typical on a Sunday morning that men are going to wear 
trousers and women are going to wear skirts. Women are going to paint their fingernails and men are not. Um, men are going to have short hair. Women are going to have long hair. So these are all things that are gender, um, their performances in a sense. They're ways that we express being male or female. Now and that can vary. That varies from culture to culture, um, from, yeah, from place to place. Uh, now, sex is, it tends to be understood as um, what's more biologically given. However, it's become much more accepted and understood that even biological sex itself is quite complicated. And so there's multiple factors that feed into that from chromosomal um, configurations to hormonal configurations to what happens in utero um, to what happens in puberty and how um, the body processes or denies um, certain hormones. And so um, there's a really great book called Testosterone Rex um, by a scientist, Cordelia Fine. And she goes through kind of the science of how much we have made out of testosterone um, that is just not substantiated scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyways, all that to say, so you have sex and you have gender and under a gender essentialist framework, typically maleness and femaleness is synonymous with masculinity and femininity because in order to be male or female, you would, it would be expressed in these certain um, prescriptive ways because that's what it means to be a man is to X, Y, or Z. Um, Typically this also gets boiled down to men are going to be agents. They're going to be actors and women are often going to be nurturers and passive. Mm. So those prescriptive doings are often rooted in what is assumed to be a biological givenness. Mm. Now, how given that biology is, is also quite contended today. And so you might have what might be called a strong constructivist approach, um, which would also see sex or biological givenness as itself not a given. So um, gender and sex are both performative. So what I propose in this chapter, which is really sitting on a knife's blade, (laughs) (laughs) uh, is saying, I want to push against this idea that gender, um, how we act as male and female, um, and code that as masculinity and femininity, that the, the scripture is really not preoccupied with what I'm doing as a woman and what men are doing as men. That's just not the, the, the primary theme of the scriptures. Uh, it's, that's just not the, the biggest thing the Bible's worried about is us fitting into gendered norms. Doesn't mean it's not there, but it's not the primary thing scripture is concerned with. And also scripture is written in a certain context that is patriarchally normed not prescriptive, but descriptively. So all that to say, that's the gender essentialist root. Um, And then you, like I said, you have the strong constructivist root. So these would kind of be two ends of uh, kind of the extremes on the spectrum. And so my chapter um, really seeks to sit between the two of those um, and say, I don't think um, scripture is most concerned about Uh, what it means to be human as it is expressed as a man and as it is expressed as a woman. I think scripture is most concerned about how do we look like Christ Mm. as we are indwelt by the spirit in acting our holy, our royal priestly calling. And so bringing in this idea of the presence of God being the central thread throughout the canon 
and how we as humans have this unique calling and how we interact with that presence and expand that presence in the world, that's the crux of the issue. And so then on the strong constructivist end, then I want to say, um, but at the end of the day, we do still have male, female, and intersex bodies. So intersex yeah. bodies are persons that have ambiguous genitalia um, or have certain chromosomal um, or have both genitalia or have chromosomal differences or adaptations um, that they don't easily fit the male or female category. And to me, that really empirically is a push against gender essentialism, mm -hmm. especially if we're going to say you have a male or female soul, then what do we do with intersex persons? Mm -hmm. um, they just don't fit that. And there's been a lot, you want to talk pastoral harm. Yeah. Um, again, I'll cite Megan DeFranza and people can look up her work and she's got a great uh, webpage with a documentary on Christians who are born intersex and how are they navigating that in a church context that is so afraid of um, embodied ambiguity. Uh, and I just really appreciate what she's doing there. But at the same time, not, but at the same time to contrast with Megan, but at the same time to contrast from strong co constructivists, I still want to affirm the goodness of maleness and femaleness. Yes. Huh. So that doesn't mean I can't affirm the goodness of intersex, but I'm, I'm just going to stand with the Genesis witness that said, and when he made the woman, it was good. It was very good. So there is something good about maleness and femaleness that frankly, we may not fully understand even on this side of the eschaton. Um, I was just reading Mark Cortez's book, uh, um, his chapter in Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed. And he gives like five options um, for why, you know, we have male or female bodies or sexed bodies. Um, and he, they're all interesting reasons, hmm. but all of them have their own weaknesses um, where we can make sexuality so much about procreation that um, any, anybody that's not having babies, their humanity gets undermined. Um, yeah. Or we can make it so much about relationship that then we, it's like, well, do we even need to have sex bodies to have those kinds of relationships? Yeah. Um, and so it's still a big question, I think, um, on exactly what is the reason that we have to have maleness and femaleness. I, I don't think the text gives us enough. To it be honest. It's not concerned with it, it frankly. It's just yeah. completely unconcerned with our question. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, Allison. And I think we're far more consumed with that yeah. um, than the scriptural writers were. And so that's really where I land my chapter, which again, like I said, it's, it's walking a knife's blade because it's going to pretty much make everyone unhappy. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> what I'm really urging in that chapter is let's try to take the emphasis of the scriptures instead of the emphasis of our questions. Um, and so typically the big um, hierarchical um, position when it comes to, to men and women uh, is like, well, egalitarians don't know how to talk about the difference between men and women. Mm. Well, um, okay, sure. I'm not going to write up a list for you. I'm just <laughs> not. Because yeah. I don't, I think that will move beyond the text and I think it will do far more harm than good. Cue history. I don't know. I, I view it as, why don't, I'll have JL when she's done you know, tent pegging that guy. I'll have her write a list for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, and even if we had a list, it would be artificial and it would be contrived. Yeah. So yeah. what, so where I land is saying there is difference, but to try to one, make those differences essential 
or two, list out those differences and make them prescriptive, that misses the heart of what scripture is teaching us. Yeah. So it's that's not, where I, yeah. I just try to go with something more positive, which is a Christocentrically informed anthropology that sees our priestly royal um, vocation realized um, in our embodied contexts, but not making it all about, you know, maleness and femaleness um, as the, 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 I don't know, the best ways to talk about our humanness. I don't think we need to deny it. Um, I think we do great harm in that. And it actually undermines the value of the body if we deny it. Um, but I, I do get concerned about how, how concerned we are about it, I guess. And there's risk in um, going, I think, the gender essentialist route uh, theologically. Um, so mm. I'll ask you, I mean, I know, uh, yeah, I, I've heard your answer to this. I'd love um, some of you guys to hear it too. Um, what, is, what are some of the risks of gender essentialism when it comes to salvation and Jesus being male? Yeah, absolutely. So if we go with that kind of definition of gender essentialism I gave earlier, um, that Jesus's maleness is its own kind of, it's male nature. And then there's female natures. Um, well, the concern fundamental. Exactly. So like he is actually of an essentially different sort than all women and all intersex persons. If we're going to take that hard of a reading on gender essentialism, it says males are of one essence and women and intersex people are of a different essence. Well, to pull from that quote from Gregory of Nazianzen, well, what is not fully assumed is not fully healed. Mm -hmm. Oh, granted. Gregory's talking in a very different context, but I think the theological point and intuition, it remains that Jesus became human. It mattered that he became male uh, for other reasons, but not in any way that undermined his full humanness and therefore the full inclusion of all human persons, of all embodied human beings, which to be a human being is to be embodied, although that brings in questions of people that have died and what is their soul state and is there such a thing as a soul? I mean, that's a whole other question, but yeah. we, we want to affirm the goodness of the body, especially when we have, I mean, as a Christian faith, the goodness of the body is replete in our whole faith from creation to incarnation to Jesus's resurrection to our resurrection. It is an embodied new heavens and new earth. It's a material reality. And so it is no escapism into this spiritual la-la land. Um, that is foreign to um, the scriptures. Uh, Surprised by Hope, a book by Tom Wright. Mm. The one I'd highly recommend for any, any listeners that um, want to read more on that. But um, yeah, I'm trying to go back to what your question was, Allison. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So what's the risk of taking an, a gender essentialist view? Um, like you were saying uh, that Jesus's maleness is, he's one type of thing in a sense. And he's yeah another type of thing what's the risk of taking that theological paradigm um and importing it over to that for instance and maybe it's an yep. unintended consequence of holding a um religious uh a certain belief system there we go yeah so that's the biggest one definitely is if jesus didn't actually assume a full human nature if he only assumed a male human nature and then didn't assume a female human nature then am i really redeemed so, I mean, that's the biggest question um, and concern. Um, I mean. Save through childbirth. No, yeah, yeah. And so then, I mean, it does raise and some will move and try to do this Mary Eve typology and set that over against an Adam Christ typology. And that's just foreign. That is foreign 
to the New Testament. Paul, I think, would have gagged if we had talked about that. Um, Thank because you. I'm doing he, he, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because it is, for, for Paul, it is all died in Adam, and now all, uh, and depending on how we understand Pantos there, um, all are unified in Christ. We are all in Christ. So there, that doesn't mean that Eve and but Mary Adam don't have... Say and what? Jesus, but Adam was a man and Jesus was a man. Yeah, well, and I don't think that that's a, a problem uh, yeah. per se. That's just their historical particularity. Um, yeah. I mean, it raises questions. And of course, this brings in, okay, how literally are we understanding the, the Edenic story? Um, but yeah. if it had been the roles reversed, if the man had eaten the fruit first, would it have been an entirely different paradigm? We don't know. I mean, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I mean, these are all speculative questions. But the biggest thing is just thinking through the full redemption of all humanity. Um, it requires that Jesus shares in common humanness, yeah. not maleness. And so maleness, and, and it raises questions on Jewishness, right? I mean, yeah. why aren't we um, essentializing his Jewishness if we're going to essentialize his maleness? That'd um, be a heck of a theological monograph. I'd love to see CBM oh, do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense. And I, 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 I have to think that most gender essentialists, they're, they're, they've, they've got to have some type of response to this, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a point of inconsistency that hasn't been maybe explored enough. Um, but yeah, I was going to ask you, and maybe you've kind of already answered. So would you maybe even tentatively move um, gender, not so much in terms of, a question of ontology as much as like maybe a personal property or a particularity of a person. Yeah, I'd want to, so language okay. of Aristotle's um, like accidental properties. Yeah. yeah um, sure. So just because, and this is important. Yeah. And I think, I, I think I even say this maybe in my chapter that just because it's accidental doesn't make it incidental. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a technical term. So can you tell them what an accidental? Yeah. So an accidental property. So um, uh, you have essential properties and accidental properties. So imagine you have um, an assembly line of cars and you've got the frames coming out um, of the, you know, everything, the, the axles, the things that uh, the steering shaft and all those things that the frame of every car is essential to that car being a car. But whether or not it's coming off the assembly line is a blue car or a yellow car yeah. um, or even, I mean, a stick shift or an automatic. I mean, we could get down even into more functional differences, um, but those would be accidental. They don't uh, undermine whether or not the car is a car. They just make it a different kind of car, yeah. but not kind in the sense of, um, of a different sort entirely and having a different essence. So I, I want to classify uh, biological or sex embodiment. I use that just because gender is such a, it's, it's a differently used term. So sex embodiment are whatever, however our chromosomes and hormones and everything work together um, to give us the sexual features that we have, the sexed features that we have. Um, that I want to say are, is like the color of the car or whether or not it's an automatic or a manual or whatever versus whether or not um, the, me being human, that's the frame of the car. That, that's something that does need to be held consistently for the car to be a car, for a person to be a person. And so I want to put this need for this kind of relationship with the God of the universe as a frame property. It is, it's essential to what it means to be human. 
Yeah, I was, I was wondering, we were talking earlier about priesthood and, and the goodness of, of, of the bodies, even in, even though we struggle with sin and death and all, all the stuff that comes along with that and impurity in the priestly systems and stuff. I, I was struck by, and, and just kind of listening while I took Nolan off to you know, change his butt, I, I'm, I'm listening and I, and I hear and I'm listening, I'm like, okay, this sounds like, uh, it, it almost reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 12 about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And if we take, we don't have to take sacrifice literally, but if we take sacrifice and what a sacrifice was, at, at least in Jewish thought, was an unblemished, here's something good that is not marked by all these other things. He's telling that to both men and women and slaves and children and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. that their bodies themselves are something that God is, that Paul views as, in, in, in essence, I'm using that term loosely, but in essence, these are good things to present yourselves to God. And of course, mm-hmm. You know, we get into that sort of stuff, but the idea that a sacrifice, a human person giving themselves over to God entirely mm-hmm. would uh, reorientate desire. It would give these sorts of constructs a little more teeth to them. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, I'm just kind of struck in thinking about it. Paul nowhere seems to, when we talk about ethics or, or virtue or the Christian life, very rarely, if ever, does he ever actually say, oh, and this is for the gals over here and this is for the guys over here. <laughs> I mean, the closest thing you get is First Corinthians 7, where it's what's good for the man is what's good for the wife and what's good for the kids is good for the whole family. It's just that, you know, you know sy- symmetry and stuff. I, so I was just, I don't know, I was listening to all this just thinking, Paul is just kind of way more progressive and, and clear thinking on a lot of this than a lot mm-hmm. of our, our, our theologians. He just, I don't I wouldn't say he preempts all of this, but the idea of our bodies being presented to God as a, as a, as an act of worship, as an act of, mm. um, this is something good to give to God because God gave up, gave us mm. life. And it's just kind of this almost interesting cyclicality that I don't know. I just, I don't know. If, I don't know what you think about that, but I just, my the Romans 12 was just kind of running through my head as, as this entire mm. conversation based on your expertise and, uh, and, and desire and need and stuff like that. I don't know. I'll just Romans 12 just was dinging in the back of my head. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anything about that. I don't know what you have to say to that. I know you're an exegete and you've done all that sort of stuff too. I don't know what your thoughts are, but that's kind well, of, I'm an, I'm an impoverished exegete. I really just rely on my biblical scholars, uh, friends <laughs> <laughs> and check out their work. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in that and, and going back again to big picture, like what, what are scripture, what, what are the scriptures exhorting us toward, um, as best as we can say that as a unified voice. And it is presenting our whole selves and the cost of discipleship is our entirety. And that includes our bodies and the goodness of our bodies, whatever that body takes the form of. And, and this honestly has a lot of implications for disability studies as well. Yes. Um, and the ways that we, I mean, man, we've, we've done horrific things when it comes to women in the church. Um, but we've also done horrific things when it comes to addressing ability and our ways of um, talk about creating barriers for people experiencing their priesthood and frankly, even experiencing a space to even access it. Um, So I think, yeah, all of this has so much to teach us. I did, because you brought up Corinthians, it it is, I think worth flagging as well. Um, We we do have, I think a solid example of, of Paul affirming um, a gendered difference, and I mean that specifically as a performative aspect when we look at 1 Corinthians 11 yes. and this idea of women having their heads covered and, and men not. Um, and again, so many people have written on this, but the point of that, again, trying to look at big picture, the point of Paul exhorting this one particular prescription for this particular community is for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. 
And so what I think is really important in that, and this is not something we addressed in DBE, but it's something we put in the conclusion of more um, study to do for either a future edition or better future works, is not every expression of masculinity and femininity are problematic and patriarchally conceived. Now that one might've still been, and Paul's saying, hey, just, I, because I still want women prophesying, I still want women praying. So here's what it needs to look like with these masculine and feminine prescriptions. Primary, I would think, again, contextually, that it's because it's going to raise eyebrows otherwise, and it's going to be a problem for people to experience the God of the universe in this intimate and powerful way if they're distracted by um, just a lack of any gender delineation. Yeah, and what's um, lewd in one culture may not be in another. That's exactly that right. Sense. But if you're in the culture where it's lewd, don't do it. (laughs) That's right. And asking that question is what is driving people toward looking like Jesus? And so here I am. I'm in New Zealand. I've been here um, just over 100 days. And I've been really challenged um, by the biculturalism here with the Maori community. Mm. The Maori, it's very interesting. um, And I haven't had enough conversations to know the ins and outs of this. um, But they have different gendered expressions of uh, masculinity and femininity mm. that I'm really interesting to, I'm interested to learn more about because everyone that I've been able to think of from an American context, like plucking my eyebrows, shaving my legs, putting on makeup, mm. uh, whatever it is that is, uh, those are things that I, I do, I still do as a woman. Um, and, <laughs> and I, it's probably because I've, I've grown up yeah. and that's just my beauty norms. Right. And, and someone could say, well, yeah, but you, now you do it because you like to. And it's like, no, I don't actually know if I like to do this. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I just do it. And it's a habit of mine. And it's something that now I think, oh, if I didn't shave my legs, oh, that would feel so gross. And it's like, that's not, that's nothing normative. And, and the reason I did it in the first place was probably because of patriarchy. I mean, it, probably definitely because of patriarchy. So, but I still do it to this day. And so I kept thinking through, are there are there positive examples that I can think of of masculinity and femininity that aren't rooted in some type of appeal to the male gaze mm. and some type of, um, yeah, enculturation that is negative. And so again, I haven't gotten to have that conversation yet here, but I'm really excited mm. about that. And that's why at the end of DBE, because I just started, um, teaching here and I saw, you know, there's other ways of doing this. And so that was one of my questions is, are there positive expressions of masculinity and femininity that aren't rooted in some type of power dynamic um, or oppression? Mm. Um, So that's a big question mark for me. Um, But I I do want to just highlight that, that there there are very rare examples, I think, um, in the scriptures where a gendered prescription is exhorted but we have to look at that in its context. And like you said, Allison, that it's not, it, it, it could be different in different church contexts, even for that time in Paul's day. And then what is the aim of it? Why is that so important to Paul? Um, and and I, I, I don't think that that's a binding prescription. So. And I think Payne's work on this is very helpful. And he, he thinks it's uh, braided hair done up over the head. Um, which is actually common for that period. And I think he looks at some uh, head busts from that period. Um, But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think at the end of the day, women are still prophesying alongside men. Yeah. Well, and 
in that yeah. context, though, the yeah, the the loose hair would be more prostitution or Dionysius cult. Um, what they would do with you know, which all said sexual undertone. So yeah, yeah, and I know Cindy Westfall's done some work on that, and Lucy Pepiad, and we just had her on, by the way. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, she's so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I don't want listeners to walk away from this thinking, oh, there's n- all all gendered expressions are mm-hmm. corrupt. I don't want to, I don't want to encourage that, but I do want us to ask better questions about why we are doing what we are doing prescriptively. And at any point, is it undermining um, the gospel? Um, And that's a good one too. Like, is this gendered expression undermining the gospel and is it undermining um, something more fundamental about my personhood or human humanness? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good test question, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And can I function fully as a royal priest who is representing the God of the universe in this world? Um, if no, okay. Well, it's like, can I properly function as a royal priest when you won't let me pass the communion cup? Or, because I mean, my church growing up, and I'm probably more, it was probably more patriarchal than your context, that, that women didn't do anything, weren't, weren't even standing up during the service not to pass stuff, not do not nothing like that. And not to even pass the offering, not even to take their money. It was just one of those where I was like thinking back now in light of, you know, priesthood and what you're, I was like, mm. man, there's so many people in that church that love that church that are happy there or content, all that, that could be doing so much more in that community. Mm. Mm. But to their credit, and I, I know this because my mom tells me, a lot of them are doing a lot more than a lot of people think they should be doing, which is its own, maybe testament to the perseverance of the spirit and hmm. all that. but it's it's just kind of like man if you won't let them pass the communion cup i don't know why they, why they'd be in church but by god's grace they're still in church hmm. so hmm. yeah so i think we have a lot of work to do um to help people realize their dignity yeah. and what they've been invited into hmm. yeah um and that's part of what's so compelling for me about this line of thinking um yeah it gets me out of bed in the morning yeah, certainly. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what else you have to come up with. And especially that, yeah, that new work that's going to come out soon. <laughs> Thank that's you. I have a lot of work to do. I don't know when I'm going to do it. <laughs> who's, publish- who's publishing it? The yeah, Baker. Baker's, Baker's going to put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited. Oh, about it. <laughs> December, yeah, right? They've been great. Well, December it's due. We'll go off to peer okay. reviewers and then um, hopefully a nine to 12 month turnaround. So yeah. Yeah. But I'll keep you posted for sure. Yeah, I'll get a, a pre-draft. <laughs> I'm inviting myself to drafts, yeah. <laughs> hey, awesome. Yeah, I'd take you up on that, so. All right, well, it was good having you, and yeah, thanks so much for, for talking and sharing with us. Absolutely, I really appreciate it, and just love what you guys are doing, and how you're living life, and yeah, good.